Peace, Love, and Connection listeners. This is Taylor, and today I was on with Nick, and we had the great pleasure of hosting Dr. Dolgen Kasyanova, an expert on nuclear policy, WMD, nonproliferation, and financial crime prevention. She's also a senior fellow at SUNY Albany and a non-resident fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I think we are moving in the right direction. I think it's harder and harder for nuclear powers to maintain this narrative that this is all right. It's not a typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies and the William P. Clinton Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin. have you here. I guess to start off, I'm really interested before maybe we get into the context to talk about what right now is the kind of living legacy of nuclear testing and the irresponsible way that the Soviet Union performed nuclear testing in Kazakhstan, because I know that the, the impacts are felt very deeply. And, and how is that a lived experience today for Kazakhs? Thank you very much for this question. I'm actually just fresh from New York City, where uh, today the second conference of, of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons took place, and it was a powerful experience of hearing testimonies from the victims and survivors of nuclear tests from different communities, not only from Kazakhstan and I'm really glad that representatives of Kazakhstan were there. The fact that I'm saying that they were there means that we are now looking at the fourth and fifth generation of victims. Even though the last Soviet nuclear test took place in Kazakhstan decades ago, this is very much a continuing legacy. I'm not a medical doctor, uh, so I'll just refer to some studies that show it's already proven that the second and the third generation of those exposed to ionizing radiation have higher mortality rates, higher cancer rates. But I want to add some of my personal observations. So I go regularly to the rural areas and villages next to the former Soviet nuclear testing site in Semipalatinsk. And there are two striking things I observe. Number one is that it's very difficult to meet somebody who's lived into a very old age. People pass on quite early, both men and women. And the second tragic and horrendous uh, experience of, you know, if you ever go there is that you meet small children who had nothing to do with the Soviet Union, with the Soviet decision making, who were not even born back then. But you meet children with visually, uh, even... Even visually, you, you see that they have um, very serious health issues. So if, for example, we might not be able to see if a person has cancer or not, which is still happening very regularly, and there are children that I've met who already went through cancer. But when I talk about visual representation of the uh, continued legacy, I'm referring to children who... Uh, might be missing some fingers, or I met a baby who uh, was six months old at the time that I met him, and he had an extra finger on one of his hands. So it's to that extent, it's still very much at the forefront 
of the lived experience of people who are there and who had nothing to do with the Soviet Union or the past. And they're still paying the price for the Soviet nuclear might. And maybe at some point we can get to the question of who is benefiting from the Soviet nuclear might now. legacy of nuclear arms. Nuclear arms were held in places not only like Russia, but also in Ukraine and other countries. And the legacy of the Soviet Union's nuclear arsenal, it seems like Russia kind of claimed ownership of the Soviet Union, which is exactly what they did in the case of Ukraine and Ukraine giving up its, its nuclear weapons. Could you explain how this happened? And for our listeners who may not be familiar with nuclear governance particularly. Can you just give an overview of what happened whenever the Soviet Union fell and what happened to the nukes and how did that happen? So I'll just start by saying that Russia was very selective in what ownership it claimed from the Soviet Union. So while it very eagerly somehow inherited the seat on the UN Security Council, it removed itself from the responsibility for for some of the Soviet atrocities that happened in the the republics. So, yes, uh, claiming ownership on on things that it likes to have, like the permanent member seat, but completely not acknowledging its role in, for example, what happened in Kazakhstan with nuclear tests, right? So the narrative would be it's the Soviet Union, but you know, when we look at the heart of the facts and who is currently benefiting from Soviet nuclear weapons that were produced and tested at the expense of many people in the former Soviet Union, but very much so people of Kazakhstan, who is using these weapons now for nuclear blackmail, for imposing certain limitations, for example, on Ukraine's partners, right? The 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 speed of the military assistance, for example, and the constant uh, anxiety, you know, based on a, on the fact that, you know, it's, it's prudent to be worried about not triggering uh, a nuclear war. So, yes, the claiming ownership is, is very selective in Russia's case. What happened at the time of the Soviet collapse? In 1991, in addition to Russia, Soviet nuclear weapons, strategic nuclear weapons, were located in Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine. Their legal status was unclear. And I know some of you have background in in law and you would understand. So while according to some of the agreements, Soviet Union divorce agreement, right? That whatever property was on the land of each republic belonged to the republic. But of course, nuclear weapons were in the category of their own. So I think it would be correct to say that they were Soviet, but they were definitely not Russian. They were controlled, of course, by Moscow. You know, in Kazakhstan, for example, ethnic Kazakhs never had access to common control. Local government didn't have physical control. It couldn't launch the weapons. It couldn't prevent them being launched. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, the Soviet nuclear weapons, and I'm taking the case of Kazakhstan, 
were located on the territory of now sovereign, independent Kazakhstan. Their legal status was unclear when it became legally codified was only in March of 1994 when Russia and Kazakhstan signed an agreement that for the first time referred to these weapons as belonging to this Russian Federation temporarily located on the territory of Kazakhstan. Until then, it was unclear. And again, factually, I just want to remind that uh, these were the weapons created with the resources of not Russia alone, and at a huge expense to the people of Kazakhstan. Well, in looking a little bit more at the history, what was what was the Kazakh role in the creation? Because I know Kazakhstan is incredibly rich in mineral resources and, and obviously plays a, a very similar role in Russian and Soviet history to, I guess, the, the West in America as kind of a space that the state seizes. Well, this is empty land and that's full of resources for us to maybe take for our own purposes. And I, I know that this is how at least it was viewed from Moscow. But what was actual Kazakh's role in the, the nuclear program outside of Moscow taking all the credit? So I'm, I'm glad you're referring to resources because I think on many levels, not only for the nuclear program, there was this very extractive attitude Right, that mm-hmm. we are taking something from you that is valuable for our purposes. In terms of the Soviet nuclear programs, so Kazakhstan, by being so rich in uranium, that was one of the clearly important roles because in order to produce a nuclear bomb, you have to have either highly enriched uranium or plutonium. So Kazakhstan had of those resources. And so the Soviet military program started developing uranium in Kazakhstan, putting facilities to produce nuclear material in Kazakhstan. But that wasn't the only involuntary contribution. Um, You know, there were other facilities or with the nuclear testing site, right? It's Kazakhstan's land. It's the people of Kazakhstan who had to be moved away from certain areas. Uh, Some of the uh, rayons or villages or settlements were disbanded in order to uh, clear out land for the actual testing site. But it's important to note that in terms of the political control, unlike with Ukraine, because while Ukrainians were not Russians, and I think you know they were never treated as maybe equal, but they were still Slavs. And so the difference between Ukraine and Kazakhstan was that Ukrainians did serve in the Soviet strategic forces. In case of Kazakhstan, Kazakh regular soldiers served at the polygon in these very menial jobs, right? In dangerous, low-level jobs that they had to do, the dangerous ones. But ethnic Kazakhs were not present in the actual administration or management or control. And that's an important distinction. And that that fact becomes relevant then to all the decision-making that was happening in Kazakhstan in terms of what to do with the Soviet nuclear weapons or whether to establish um, an indigenous nuclear program. That's very fascinating. And I've, I've read multiple works about the internal racialized hierarchies of the Soviet Union. It's kind of this multicultural claim with this nebulous racial underbelly. 
with that in mind, you mentioned that in Kazakhstan, the locals and the ethnic Kazakhs didn't have the chance to be participatory in their own governance under the Soviet Union. So how did that complicate things whenever the Soviet Union collapsed and Kazakhs suddenly kind of re-inherited their own land and had to deal with these huge pressing questions like nuclear weapons and who's going to have them? So how did they fulfill that role of stepping into being able to finally take ownership and governance of their own nation. I think it was a fascinating moment in Kazakhstan's history. It was very empowering and it was definitely a moment of reclaiming agency. And it started even before the Soviet Union officially collapsed. Uh, For me, that started in the 80s when we had Kazakh youth protesting against Moscow's rule, which was very cruelly uh, suppressed. And then with the anti-nuclear movement uh, that was, you know, driven from ground up within Kazakhstan. And so this process of reclaiming agency started a little bit earlier. When the Soviet Union officially collapsed, Kazakh leadership had so many crisis on its hands. And I think it's incredible that, you know, being such a young republic and Honestly, not having the sophisticated, maybe, knowledge on certain parts of the nuclear program. So, for example, specialists from Kazakhstan were very good on production of nuclear material, but yes, they were not part of the command and control system. And politically also, they had to understand all these nuances of the global context. And for me, it was incredible when I worked with the archival documents that I could see that while it was a small number of people in Kazakhstan, but they were able to really engage in the discourse or decision-making process with a very nuanced understanding of how Kazakhstan would fit into the global nuclear context and how they were making decisions based on, on that. So they definitely, it was definitely a huge challenge, but I think it's incredible what they did. Noting that they had all these other right, <laughs> issues on their hands and right. yes, and, and noting that they didn't even have full information on what happened on their own land because uh, a lot of nuclear related data was controlled by Moscow and, and so even in terms of what was left on at the former testing site, what you know, what was the what were the risks both for safety but also for security, right. and, and there were interesting projects that were taking place um, over ne- the next couple of decades after the Soviet collapse of Kazakhstan, gradually getting information from Russia and working with Americans and Russians on cleaning up uh, the testing site. But yeah, I just want to reiterate that. We need to remember that it was 1991, Kazakhstan's economy was in complete crisis because of the collapse of all the links with other republics. Initially, no currency of its own, no military of its own, very few people who could understand or who could negotiate these issues. And yeah, I I definitely, as a Kazakh, I felt pride of how they yeah, they were just building this new country and, and resolving these issues in, in the crisis mode. Especially in the context of, of such huge disasters like the Aral Sea disaster, which, which is a legacy of, of Soviet uh, irresponsibility and, and kind of irresponsible irrigation techniques, um, literally pouring water into the desert. Would you describe, do you, do you think that the nuclear program and, and the, the attitude that it exhibited, uh, Moscow looking at Kazakhstan, could be described that this is a, an extension of a colonial attitude? 
I, I'm reminded very much of the partition of India and the British saying, well, we're leaving. Good luck. It's kind of you keep all the, the, the damage, but, but we'll obviously be keeping the, the rewards. But is that maybe an extension of a, a colonial attitude? Absolutely. In colonial in general terms, because it wasn't only about nuclear, as you correctly said, there were other environmental disasters. But even in terms of the weapons of mass destruction, I think it's not commonly known that the Soviet Union, the Soviet military also tested biological weapons on an island in the Aral Sea shared by Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. And in, in the 70s, there was even an outbreak of weaponized smallpox. And thankfully, it was contained, uh, kind of thanks to the dictatorial methods of the Soviet Union, because they they, the town was completely sold off and so on. But just in general, the, I think there is this broader context of indifference and exploitation. And then, of course, on the nuclear level, that's nuclear colonialism. That's very clear. But I want to mention that it's not that the Soviet experience was unique. Uh, it's actually typical to nuclear powers. So if you look at the experience of all major nuclear powers who conducted nuclear tests, you definitely see the parallels. The United States, right? Tests mm-hmm. in Nevada, where there are all sorts of, you know, communities that maybe don't have full agency over their own land or their fate. You know, I'm talking about the communities of uh, native settlements or you know, another type of minority Mormons. Uh, and, and then the, the U.S. starts testing in the Marshall Islands where, you know, the impact has been horrendous and they are still living through it. And, and so similar with every other nuclear power. So the Soviet military was not uniquely atrocious in how it chose where to test. But yeah, in the Soviet case, definitely uh, Kazakhstan suffered because of that policy. Yeah, it doesn't seem that it's a coincidence that nuclear weapons seem to be tested where indigenous people live. It definitely seems like a shared theme across all of these states. So there is definitely a racial undertone, but I want to be nuanced. And I would say race was not the only defining component it was more that they were choosing where, as I said, communities were vulnerable in some way or another. It's just that, as we know from history, race is very often often a, a determinant in the power dynamics, right, or power structures. And so often this lack of agency overlap with the racial issue, but it wasn't the only one. Because right. if we take Kazakhstan, not only ethnic Kazakhs suffered, all these people who were exiled or enticed to, to come to Central Asia, Central Asia, the Russian villages. And so it's not that there was this, let's do it on purpose because they're Kazakhs. It was more this indifference and, 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 and the lack of pushback because people didn't have a voice. biggest theories of nuclear powers stockpiling weapons is this idea of nuclear deterrence. I need to build up my armory so that way you don't attack me. But then that leads into a security dilemma because the bigger your armory is, the bigger the guy you're protecting yourself from wants to build his armory. 
So it, it gets into this arms race, and we saw that during the Cold War. What are your thoughts about this theory, and what are the roles of international institutions and bilateral treaties in trying to address this deterrence dilemma? I think the, this narrative that uh, it's necessary for deterrence and that somehow nuclear weapons responsible for the long peace that we're having, and I think it's a very flawed uh, and intellectually dishonest narrative because, first of all, how can you prove that something didn't happen because of, you know, of deterrence, for example? Second, it's not talked about enough in wider public discourse about how many times the world was this close to a nuclear disaster, either because of some accident or misinterpreted signal, you know, for example, a scientific satellite being launched and then the other side is thinking, am I under attack? And, and so I think we were just dumb lucky. It's not that deterrence definitely works. And then I think if for those who are promoting uh, the narrative that it worked or it continues to work, that it's such a disrespect to all the thousands of people who literally died because of nuclear weapons programs. Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you combine this, you know, the narrative that, you know, deterrence is wonderful and that's why we are kind of secure and with the fact that actually no, there has been this war and the people kind of going on. And I advise you, you know, uh, to just read up a little bit on this treaty on, on the prohibition of nuclear weapons that is concluding its work today. Didn't have a chance to read the final statement yet, but there is a very powerful pushback exactly against nuclear deterrence. Uh, it, it seems like it's that arms race theory that there's no real incentive to disarm your nuclear arsenal or to get rid of your nuclear weapons in this worldview. And, you know, I pose the question back to you. Who do you think is interested? Who, who benefits from the nuclear arms race? Well, personally, I think weapons manufacturers or the research and design, whoever has money in it, follow the money and the 100%, power. 100% correct. In the end of the day, it is, the, it is about the power. And it's just incredible. It's about power and it's about money. And it's incredible how the military industrial complex was so successful into you know, solidifying this narrative. But again, I just want to say that I think now we're at a, at, this, at a very important moment in our lives because for the first time we have a UN treaty that prohibits nuclear weapons. Granted, no nuclear armed state is part of it. But when you have majority of countries in the world supporting the treaty and actually, you know, the voices of those who were marginalized before now heard so loudly putting nuclear armed states on the defensive, I think we are moving in the right direction. I think it's harder and harder for nuclear powers to maintain this narrative, you know, that this is all right. Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. Fear to attack. Fear. And would, would you agree maybe that, that deterrence is a a way that states convince both themselves and their populations that this is worth it, 
that this is necessary because we know states and groups and people in power utilize these narratives of this is for for the good of us all or this is necessary. I mean, I'm thinking back to collectivization and industrialization where it's like this is the path that we must take. And so therefore, any sacrifice is necessary. Do you, do you think that that's a way that they convince themselves using this term that over time, these institutions, it, it gets ingrained where it's, well, this is what we've done. It's protected us. All of these narratives that when you actually look at them are maybe empty of, of meaning. Or at least exaggerated. For example, I don't want to, to minimize or to legitimize the security worries of, let's take the U.S., right? Some of the... U.S. partners that are the uh, U.S. nuclear umbrella, for example, or rely on deterrence under NATO, for example, under NATO nuclear umbrella. I, I don't want to dismiss uh, the fact that some some countries feel very insecure and that it makes them feel better that there is a partner right that could provide this additional layer of security because they are a nuclear power and they're on your side. But fundamentally, I, I think that if the most powerful countries, and let's take the United States with the most powerful conventional army says it doesn't feel secure without having nuclear weapons, what kind of message is it sending to everybody else? And let's take, you know, what we are living through today with the war. Does the existence of nuclear weapons make us feel better or worse? Does it raise the risk or minimize the risk? So so kind of as a follow-up to that, at UT, the Slavic Connection and Kreese recently had the pleasure of hosting a, an open forum with some Ukrainian parliament members. And one of the parliament members um, mentioned that Ukraine, in the case of Ukraine, they gave up their nuclear weapons. And basically how she characterized it was in a trade for the promise of the West to protect its sovereignty. And she said, given what's happened with Russia, that that is a huge disincentive for any other small nations to disarm their nuclear arsenals. And do you have any thoughts about the incentives for a small country that may not have, you know, as big of a conventional military as some of these like traditional great powers, if you will? What are the incentives to disarm the nuclear arsenal, especially given the state of the world today? It is true that uh, Ukraine and, and Kazakhstan, for them, receiving security assurances, guarantees, was very important in their decision-making uh, when they were thinking what to do with the nuclear weapons that they inherited. And there was this Budapest Memorandum in which three nuclear powers in ink said that they respect territorial integrity. Uh, of these three countries that were voluntarily giving up nuclear weapons. Right. And the Russian Federation was one of the signatories. And then 2014, annexation of Crimea, 2022, full invasion. And kind of, and what, right? Uh, so with the Budapest Memorandum, what we are now understanding is that, of course, it, it didn't have maybe a very well thought through enforcement mechanism, you know, its value as a legal document is questioned. But back at the time, you know, it did feel like a good document. And it's, it was a document signed by the presidents. What else can you expect in terms of political commitment from the countries, right? right? right. So, absolutely. of course, it's absolutely natural that Ukraine is asking itself now, 
why and right, and and right. and similarly in Kazakhstan after 2014 it was a very also sensitive moment for Kazakhstan because you realize that what you negotiated what you strived for so much you know the assurances that you received that they were not what you thought they were or they're not being enforced at least and, and you know right. and again on the legal side there is no enforcement mechanism and, and so it's what's happening right now sends a horrible message mm-hmm. to other countries. It's detrimental to the future of global non-proliferation regime because exactly how do you persuade countries if, you know, even at the highest level, then it can be disregarded. But building a nuclear weapon is not an easy project. I don't think there will be an explosion of new nuclear states, but in the long term, run just for in terms of when we speak about the norms and security considerations, Russia's invasion has done so much damage. And since the war began, I'm asked very often, did Kazakhstan and Ukraine make a mistake by giving up nuclear weapons? Uh, I think here the question should be more not giving up Soviet nuclear weapons, but even you know, setting up their own, developing their own indigenous, um, you know, latent nuclear programs because they were in a position to do so. But see, even the question, did Kazakhstan and Ukraine make a mistake? The question should be, how did we end up in a situation Mm -hmm. that Russia is doing this and we cannot control it fully, right? Right, That the light should be on Russia and its actions, not on Ukraine and Kazakhstan, that actually made, I still believe they made the right choice for themselves, but also for the sake of the global international order. 20 countries have atomic bombs now. What's the use of stopping just this one? But back at the war room, they believe you can win a nuclear war. There can be acceptable losses. Are you developing nuclear weapons? Uh, regrettably, yes. But it is, you know, a sacrifice required for the future of the human race. It strikes me that there, there's there's kind of an allegory in nuclear weapons themselves that, that kind of the idea that this thing, this unimaginable power can be controlled and contained. And then you look at the consequences and the and the fall the fallout, the literal fallout and the metaphorical fallout that that communities and humanity at large has to fall. And I, I really think why uh, when we talk about nuclear weapons and, and, and nuclear writ large, why do things like Chernobyl or Fukushima or even Bikini Atoll? Why did these places come up, but but nobody ever mentioned Semipalatinsk or uh, all of the places in Siberia that were poisoned by by uh, radiation and and nuclear power nuclear power disasters and I think it's changing now, and I have to credit all the efforts by activists and certain governments that really over the last decade or so started promoting this idea of the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons. And as I mentioned with the new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, that these voices that were not taken into consideration at all earlier are now at the forefront of this discourse. And I, and I think that's where we need to move. We need to bring the stories. We need to bring 
these real people, the humans behind the impact of nuclear programs, so that those diplomats and military planners, uh, those who are sitting in Washington, D.C. or in Paris or Moscow, do not um, have the luxury of talking about nuclear deterrence or nuclear weapons programs as though it's something abstract that has nothing to do with actual real people because these people are paying the price and I think it's completely dishonest to just talk about nuclear weapons programs as, as though it's something abstract. So this is a bit of a pivot, but we all know that the first two nuclear bombs were dropped by the United States government on Japan, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But despite the Japanese anti-nuclear sentiment for weaponry, much of their country is actually powered by nuclear energy. Unlike Kazakhstan, they are not resource-rich in minerals, so they've had to be a little bit more creative about how they power their island. Is there a role for nuclear energy that's not weaponized in the world? I know even in climate change discourse, a lot of people are very hopeful. They describe nuclear energy as very clean. What are your thoughts about nuclear energy writ large? And do you think it's possible to have a de-weaponized nuclear world? I, as a person, uh, I'm not a specialist on energy, for example, but I'm definitely not against uh, nuclear power as a source of energy. I very much believe and value nuclear science, uh, peaceful nuclear technology. And I'm now, I know that, you know, maybe some anti-nuclear uh, activists, they see it, you know, nuclear weapons programs and nucle- peaceful nuclear programs, nuclear power programs mm-hmm. as almost two parts of the same, I, I separate. I, I think it's up to each country to decide whether they truly need nuclear power and if they can ensure that safety and security standards are at the highest level. But I don't know, it's, I don't know if it's an immediate world that you're describing that we can have peaceful nuclear power right. and no nuclear weapons because unfortunately I think For a very long time, nuclear weapons will continue to exist. But I just want to kind of reiterate my personal opinion that I, I, as a scholar, for me, it's important to have nuance in this discussion. And, you know, while, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll be the first to tell you about the dual use uh, nature of nuclear technology, to still say that nuclear science, peaceful nuclear programs, I think they have a right to exist. It's just that all the risks need to be taken into consideration and governments should be, should feel extreme responsibility when they're dealing with this kind of technology. Well, Dr. Kasenova, I I think that's a wonderful way to end. And and thank you so much for being on the Slavic Connection. We we really enjoyed having you. And do you have any um, anything you'd like to share? Any plugs that you want to give out to our audience? If your audience wants to know more about Kazakhstan's path in the nuclear field, may I mention my book, Atomic Step: How Kazakhstan Gave Up the Bomb, and on Ukraine, I highly recommend the recent book by Mariana Bujerin. It's called Inheriting the Bomb, and it's a comprehensive, wonderful account of Ukraine's path on giving up nuclear weapons. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you.
Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 